Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Ian Austin's undercover cop, Dan Calder, is a man with a tendency for trouble, either creating it or falling into it. And he's also the protagonist in a crime series that's been favourably compared to international names like John Grisham and Ian Rankin. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Ian talks about why he doesn't see Dan as a hero figure, describes how he became a full-time writer after a long and successful career as a police officer and explains the high value he places on reader feedback. But before we get to Ian, just a reminder, there's a full transcript of the interview on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Ian's books and social media, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Ian. Hello there, Ian, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me. This time, we're not that far apart. We're just one side of Auckland and the other side of Auckland, which is rather unusual. So you're based in New Zealand. You're a former police officer turned full-time author. And I'm thinking that maybe you harbored secret hopes of writing long before you actually got into it. What made you decide to swap Chasing Crims for writing? <laughs> so, well, the truth is probably exactly the opposite. I had um, no qualifications from school whatsoever. I think I was always seen as being the dunce at school. And, and to be honest, didn't do an awful lot to persuade people I wasn't. And it was only when I joined the police that I talk about as being my salvation, because it really was, that I learned maybe I'm not quite as, as silly as people thought I was. And I actually had this certain set of skills and, and writing and formulating plans, making statements, recording interviews was a big part of that. So um, w- when I realised or, or when I came to realise over a period of time that I had these abilities. Um, I I started to enjoy the writing side a lot more of what I was doing, designing lesson plans for National Crime Squad and things like that. And then the idea to to write a story came. And and with the career that I had, uh, I had all this research material and um, this old adage that people talk about, oh, everyone's got a story inside them, happened to be true with me. And so for a number of years, I, I wanted to write a book and um, I was lucky enough to be able to do so. Great. Look, I, I looked up online, actually, to see how many cops had become novelists. And funnily enough, there aren't as many as there are lawyers. I don't know if that's a surprise. But um, <laughs> Joseph Wambor is one of them. And there are a number of others whose names are, co- are slightly less well known. Have you networked with any any of the other cops turned writers? Uh, to, to be honest, I haven't. Um, I think it comes down basically to a lot of naivety and ignorance on my part I mean um, before I started writing I didn't do any research into what I should do or or talk to other people about it I just sat down at a laptop one day and started to write and learned as I went along which is um, how how basically I learned most things Uh, since I've been writing I've, I've met a number of 
New Zealand uh, policemen that are also writers. Um, some of them ha ha are still in the job and write under non-diplumes. Others have left the job and are now writing like I do and so on. Oh, great. Oh, that's wonderful. So you've published so far a trilogy of highly praised crime novels. Reviewers compare you to big names like John Grisham and Ian Rankin. That's very um, top company to be mentioned amongst. How does that make <laughs> you feel? Well, obviously, I'm very happy about that. Uh, it took me quite a while, to be honest with you, to to actually be able to say to myself and other people that I write good stuff. Um, I, I, I'm always a little bit reluctant to try and oversell things before I'm sure. And um, so coming to coming to writing, and especially in the way that I did, um, it's taken a while to be able to, you know, confidently say to people that, yeah, I, I'm writing good stuff and I'm very grateful and appreciative of the of the positive comments from other people. Yes, you've written four books and the, and the last three have been the Dan Calder series. But that first book, was that more uh, almost like a trainer novel, do you think? Is that? I think it. I think it. Now looking back, it probably was. Um, I, I say that that's the book that I needed to write to prove to people that I could do it and prove to myself that I could do it. And now I'm writing what I really want to write and what I really enjoy writing. But that first one, which was called The Ideas Man, um, I think I'm going to revisit one day. And it was uh, what ended up being a 500-page book, which will be a much better 400-page book. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Your hero is called Dan Calder, and he works as an English undercover police officer who relocates to New Zealand, and that's very much your own story. So you're always going to have to answer this question of how yeah. <laughs> autobiographical are they? And I think you've mentioned that probably they're becoming less so as you go along, but but how, how do you manage that aspect of it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I had this idea <clears throat> for, for a story which involved a uh, uh, an ex-British detective. And Auckland is such a, an amazing and cool place. It seemed like a really good idea um, to write about somewhere that I knew. And certainly when I started off, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to write <clears throat> um, with confidence. And so the more familiar you are with places, the more confident you can be. And um, because it's really important to me that I produce the best possible product I can, it did make sense in those early days to um, write about things that were familiar. But as time goes on, as you say, and the confidence builds, I've got, um, yeah, I, I, I'm much more able to write more freely now, uh, if I can put it that way. Yes, yes. So you've just recently published the third book in the series. It's called Frozen Summer. And in that story, Dan returns to the UK to settle a cold case that's been on his conscience for a long time. And I'm curious, yeah. did you have the outline for all three of the Dan Calder books in your head before you started writing book one? Well, I did. Um, it started as an idea for a story, for a book. Um, but as I thought more about it and as I started to write it, it sort of exploded in um, in several different directions. And so what started as one story soon became three. The original idea for the story was 
in essence, the, the middle of the three books, The Second Grave. I've always been fascinated by this idea of revenge and what people are prepared to do to exact revenge on other people and what people are prepared to do for the for others that they care about. And then I came across this um, fantastic saying by Confucius, the Chinese philosopher, who said, before you embark on a journey of revenge, you should dig two graves. And that sort of gave me uh, a little bit of an idea and, and inspiration, and it all started from there. Fantastic. Um, and one of the other, I think it's the first one, has an amazing setup um, scenario where called The Agency. Mm. That did become the first book, didn't it? That's right, yeah. It focuses yeah. on an elusive and top-secret organisation that organises tailor-made assisted suicide. And when they're a little short of people, of candidates, they start trolling databases for people who are suffering from depression. And it's so such a horrible sort of intriguing, fascinating idea. I just wondered, did it ha ever have any basis in fact? Um, well, it does, actually. Unfortunately, New Zealand's got this really high rate of depression and suicide. Um, and so Auckland became a really good location to um, to situate the book because it had this like rich uh, resource, if you like, for the uh, uh, the, the potential uh, for the agency to to do what they to do what they do. Um, and then obviously I was able to write about somewhere familiar around the waterfront area and so on. Um, and uh, I. I when I was in the in the police in England, uh, Christmas Eve 1990, I was very badly injured. I was nearly beaten to death outside a, a pub. And uh, as a result of that and the recovery process, I went through a period of um, uh, depression as well. So I was able to write from personal experience um, with regard to that as well. Fantastic. So Dan is a refresh refreshingly complex character. You've, you've said about him that he's always causing trouble or falling headlong into it and that he's got yeah. a cupboard full of skeletons there. Um, what, mm. what attracted you to write this kind of hero? Um, well, the first thing I should say is I don't see him as any hero at all. Um, he's, he's, you're not going to find him fighting six incredible Hulk-like figures on his own or being able to shoot somebody from half a mile away. He's not that sort of character at all. He's He's a much more human character, in my view, um, with probably more flaws than attributes. Um, and his his best quality, his best attribute, is the way he's able to think and rationalise. Um, and whilst it's his best, it's also um, comes at a price because it obviously affects the way that he thinks and his um, his morals and his ethics and so on. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword for him. Uh, and, and as I say, uh, and as you said, um, it, what, it, what happens is whilst he's able to do these amazing things as a policeman in the way that he thinks and is able to investigate, it also um, means that he ends up with these skeletons in his cupboard, things that he can't forget, things that he, uh, he would want to change if he could and so on. And um, the type of character he is, he can't let those things go. The books have quite a strong sense of moral compass, don't they? The sort of uh, dilemmas that particularly an undercover police officer has to face and 
sometimes there just isn't a way of making it right or, or choosing the right thing. Whatever you do, there's going to be a downside to it. Would, is that a fair way to describe it? I, I think some people would think so. Um, unfortunately, there are, there, are, there are times when there is just one right and wrong um, and there's no grey areas in between and you have to choose one, of, one or the two and not everybody is going to agree with your choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The latest book, Frozen Summer, ends with a massive cliffhanger. I was absolutely astounded, actually. I thought it was really courageous. And I won't give anything away on it because people who are reading it, we don't want to spoil it for them. But you make an appeal to readers to tell you which way to take the story in the next instalment. Yeah. It's it's probably a bit early yet because the book's only really been out a a week or so, hasn't it? You probably haven't had much response on that yet. But um, do you have any preference yourself about how you want it to go or are you genuinely going to sort of almost take a vote on it? Um, no, I, I will definitely go with what the majority say. Uh, and I've gone as far as writing three beginnings to the next book um, in readiness for that. Um, I, I really value the feedback. I mean, and I have to say that um the comments I've had in general from readers, reviewers, critics in the last few years has just been sensational. Um, I think I'm writing realistically. I think I'm writing from what would, what people would describe as a refreshing new angle as well. But what I've what I think is that reading has got to be entertaining. I mean, books are hideously expensive. And I owe it to um, the people that are prepared to put their hands in their pockets to buy it, to give them the best product I possibly can. And um, I like the idea of getting uh, a reader, an audience invested in the story in the same way that I used to like getting a jury invested in the way that I would give evidence. Because I think if you've got them on side, you're far more likely to get a a positive result. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, how far have you got with book number four? Uh, I would say that I'm probably about 60% through it at the moment. It's um, it, it was a book that was going to be entirely set at Auckland Airport over a 10 to 12-hour period. But because of um, the ongoing interest in, in the books, um, and uh, I've been advised by people that I trust to um, – to internationalise him more, the second half of the book, which does begin at the airport, uh, moves to America. So I'm I'm really interested in uh, how that's going at the moment. I'm having a really good time doing that research. Do you, you mean? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, that's great. And so, not knowing quite how the what you're going to do with the ending to book three, and that that will affect quite a lot, some of the outcomes. Has that made it more difficult to write as far as you've gone now? No, like I said earlier, because I'm I'm, I'm basically so naive about this whole writing, whole writing lark, no one's ever told me how difficult it's supposed to be. And so I just um, sit in front of the laptop and start writing. And um, I don't seem to have any boundaries. Um, I find writing easy. Um, I know that's probably not a really good thing to say. But um, and I have the best time. I, you know, I don't have a, a set plan of how I write or when I when I'm going to write. There have been lots of times where 
um, I, you know, I'll go and set up the laptop after breakfast and then I've got, got to be dragged off it because it's got dark and I haven't moved since, um, yeah, since the morning. Gosh, that is amazing. I, I think a lot of people would be very um, envious of that. I think um, I think a lot of it is if, like I say, if no one ever tells you how hard it is to do something and you get on and do it, um, life becomes a lot less complicated. And I, I feel sure that if people spent less time talking about how hard something was and just got on and did it, much more would get achieved. Yes. I noticed in, in the foreword of one of your books, you encouraged people to, if they've got a big project, you use the example of running a marathon, just mm. get in there and do it. And you have been a marathoner as well, haven't you? Perhaps you've just got that ability to take on big projects. Um, oh, well, that's very kind of you to say. I'll, I'll definitely take that. Thank you very much. But I, I, I think, I think, like I say, I mean, it's just if you if you have enough desire to do anything, there's not a lot in this life that you can't achieve. And if certainly as far as the police went, and I used to say this to people that I trained all the time, if you're bored in your role in the police, then you are doing something wrong because it is the best job in the whole world. I, I, I miss doing the job every single day. Um, and I, I, I hopefully bring that sort of attitude to everything else as well. If, you know, if you're bored or if you're not happy, do something about it. Yes. So how did you make that transition? I mean, I, I mentioned Joseph Wambor, and apparently <laughs> he gave he went to full-time writing when he found that his status as an author was negatively affecting his job how did you make that transition out of the police if you still were so much enjoying the job yeah I I came I, I was a policeman in the UK for 20 years I was one of the first lot of POM cops that got recruited to New Zealand in 2002-2003 um, and I'd always wanted to come to New Zealand I have family here and always thought I'd end up retiring here um, after I did my 30 years service in the police in the UK, but um, divorces uh, happened and a separation happened uh, at that point in time. And um, we made the decision that, you know, if I don't do it now, then I might not get that chance in the future. So, yeah, grab the opportunity with both hands. So I, I came to New Zealand to join the police Um and yeah, never regretted coming here. It's the only place I've actually ever been where I do feel at home, much more so than the UK, to be honest. Um, and I did a number of years in the police here before I got just a little bit frustrated with the organisation. I think in some areas, it's not as professional as I would like it to be. And um, in the time that I would have had left in the police here, um, there wasn't enough time for me to affect it to change things. And I'd met my partner, Sally, um, over here um, by that time. And she encouraged me and said, look, you came here for the quality of life. If you're not enjoying it, doing something about it. And she actually offered to give me a year off to write a book, which I'd wanted to do at that time for, for a number of years. And so um, that's how I came to write the first book. And within two weeks of starting it I just thought well this is me this is what I want to do and so there's been no looking back since then. That's fantastic. Look, turning to your wider career if is there one thing you've done perhaps more than any other in your writing career that's been the secret of your success? Um, I can't think of 
a single thing. As I say, um, the, the naivety and ignorance can take you a long way. And um, if I had to, if I had to think of one thing, it's I have this very analytical brain as well, in the same way that Calder does, I suppose. Um, and in that way, the the books are slightly um, autobiographical. And so it's that attention to detail uh, and the manner in which I write is very statement-like taking in a, in a way. It's very descriptive. I like to use the word like um, because it's very easy to invest readers in a story if you can put a picture in their mind of how of what something looks like or how something sounds. And um, the feedback I get universally is that they that readers like that that type of descriptive writing and so I suppose that if anything is is the one thing that my police career gave me that enables me to write how I write today. You probably were trained to be very observant as a police officer as well I would imagine. Uh, absolutely I mean I, I did a number of years uh, uh, as a covert surveillance operative an undercover operative and then having to teach other people to become um, surveillance operatives as well. Um, you have to be able to um, notice things as opposed to see them. You see things every day, but you have to notice them in order to remember and recount the details later. Yeah. Look, I'm thinking that over all these years of experience that you must have met some very interesting people. If you were going to put together a dinner party of perhaps the most fascinating people in your ambit, from both the past and, and and currently, who would you choose? Who would you like to invite to dinner? Oh, wow. Um, oh, I, I tell you what, Jenny, can I have two dinner parties? Can I give you two lists? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. But the, the first one would um, include my hero, Sherlock Holmes, not the actual um, Conan Doyle writer, but the character himself of Holmes. Um, I think he and I... Um, I've got a lot in common, um, both good and bad. Um, I'd also invite Margaret Thatcher, uh, the ex-Prime Minister of, of the UK. She came to power at the time I joined the police and um, was very obviously influential in, in how the police grew over the next period of years as I was um, becoming an officer and doing all these different things. Um, I think I'd invite Queen Elizabeth I. I see her as one of the best, if, if best is a proper term for a monarch, one of the best monarchs there has been in what she was able to achieve for the country. And I've, um, I've been following what's happening in the States with Trump and the impeachment and so on. And I've recently learned a little bit about this guy, James Madison, who wrote uh, most of the American Constitution. He seems to be a really interesting character, so I'd invite him as well. That would be um, that would be my first dinner party. That's the Friday night, and on the Saturday, if I could have them, my next one, um, I, I'd actually invite the, the previous six generations of of my grandparents. I think so: my dad, my granddad, my great granddad, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'd like the idea of sitting down with them and just talking about family and how they perceived the world and how they thought their descendants would turn out and um, how things are today. 
That's fantastic. So where did they? Where would they mainly be living? What and what sorts of jobs were they doing? Um, my father um, was in the merchant navy for a number of years, mm-hmm. uh, and he moved around a lot because his father was in the Royal Air Force, and so they travelled the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and and going back before that, we've we've got parent uh, uh, grandparents that were. Um, came from uh, Russia, who were Russian Jews that ended up living in South Africa. And, yeah, it's quite a varied um, uh, ancestry. So I think it would be an interesting evening. Very international by the sound of it. Yeah, I like the idea of that. Yeah, that sounds great. I suppose it wouldn't be feasible to try and combine the two, so I can understand how you'd... (laughs) (laughs) Too much conversation for one night, yeah. Yeah. Look, turning to Ian as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, and and obviously your books are really designed. If people discover the first one, they're very likely to want to go on and read the rest of the series. Um, Who do you like to binge read? And I know you you sound as if you're really interested in history, but who do you like to binge read? And can you give our listeners any recommendations? Yeah, I I look at myself as being really fortunate now because, you know, just talking back about school days again and and not doing an awful lot of school work. I didn't do an awful lot of reading. So I've got all this, uh, the pleasure of catching up now. Um, I I like uh, Edward Rutherford, the way that he writes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've read a number of his books um, over and over, um, New York, London, Paris, Serum, uh, which is very close to where I was uh, born and brought up um, in the south of England. Uh, I like his books a lot. If I want to laugh, I'll probably read someone like Tom Sharp, mm-hmm. who who wrote um, uh, um, in South Africa uh, and then in the UK as well. Um, I like something a little bit different, and I found a book a couple of years ago, uh, which I, I I think is probably, if I have to be pushed, would say is my favourite book, and that's called Alone in Berlin by a guy called Hans Falada who wrote uh, just after the Second World War, and it's a a book set during the war in Germany. And I would recommend anybody to read that. I mean, it's uh, it's an amazing story with a very, very individual style of writing. Um, So far as police and police procedural stuff, um, I do like Susan Hill, a British writer who's got a... um, a policeman called Simon Soralia, who she writes, and uh, I enjoy her writing a lot. Do you read a lot of police procedurals yourself? Um, I don't read an awful lot, um, full stop. Um, and because I'm very conscious of my my <laughs> my failings as a reader going back, I'm trying to catch up with all the what are called, you know, the, the classics. I like to read a little bit of Dickens. I like to read a little bit of Jane Austen. Um, and even the Brontes and things like that. I mean, I, I feel like I've missed out, and so I'm playing catch up at the moment. And um, every now and then, I'll uh, you know I'll read Dan Brown or something like that as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's, there's an awful lot in my um, to read list. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's great. We're starting to come to the end of our time together. So circling around and looking back across your life as it, as it is today, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, would you change anything? And if so, what would you change? I think it's a bit awkward to say that you change something because then it, it would be entirely different. Um, 
and I'm I'm really happy with this with what I'm writing and the way that I'm writing now. One thing I do regret, um, my my mum passed away a number of years ago. I would really have loved to have uh, written something while she was still alive that uh, that she could have read, because I know that mum and dad worried about me when I was a kid, what I'd end up being, and so on. And um, the fact that I had the police career that I did, and I'm now having the writing career, um, I think that would have um, uh, put their minds to rest a little bit more if had they known that sooner. Yes, yeah. Um, so looking ahead to the next 12 months or so, what have you got in terms of projects in the work, say, for the next 12 months? Um, well, as you said earlier, Frozen Summer has literally just been out for 10 days or so. So hopefully we'll have we'll enjoy the the um, the interest that comes from that. Uh, I've got a number of other um, interviews and, and appearances and projects lined up with regard to Frozen Summer, and I really enjoy talking about um, these books. They're very close to my heart um, in the way um, that they've they've come about, and um, and and a number of things that have happened personally in the last few years have made them all the more important and special. Um, the, the middle book, Second Grave, um, was going through its editing process at the time that my my son died very suddenly, and that changed things um, massively. Uh, it changed the whole editing process, the the relationships between some of the characters and, and certainly the, the direction of the third book as well. Um, and so um, I'm immensely proud of, uh, of how they've turned out and what they mean and what they mean to the people that are close to me as well. Um, but once we've done all that, um, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the new one that I'm writing at the moment um, starts at Auckland um, and then moves to um, America. I'm really looking forward to continuing the research and the writing of that one. Is that uh, got a title at the moment? Uh, it's got a working title of Bonded. Um, if you um, go to the dictionary for the definition of bond, you'll see that there's about a dozen different things. And um, I won't give too much away, but the idea of, of that multifaceted um, idea um, appeals to me. And I've, I've, I've found what I think is generally a pretty banal, uh, what people would think of as a banal, boring subject, and giving it a rather dark twist um, to make it the central theme of that book. So um, I'm really enjoying um, that. And obviously, because although it's a colder book, it's a, a book that um, takes place sometime after Frozen Summer ends, and therefore um, the skeletons in his cupboards um, are, are not the same, uh, and it's a completely different book in a different style. And are you thinking that there are going to be more colder books after this book for one? What do you think, slightly longer term? Or have you got any ambitions to do something completely different, like an Edward Rutherford type of thing? Is there anything like that on the horizon in the future? Well, I've, I've probably got, I don't know, 20 books, 20 stories started on the laptop. Um, oh, really? You know, yeah, you, you start writing something thinking it will be part of this story. And then you realise that actually it probably won't, but it's actually a good idea for something else. And so that then gets filed away um, as a potential project. And I have started 
um, at least a dozen other stories already, most of them featuring Calder. Um, and so, yeah, I think he's got uh, a lot more to offer um, but before uh, I'm, I'm done with him. But, uh, yeah, I do also have ideas for other stories as well. Gosh, it sounds like there'll be no problem with inspiration for you. That's great. Yeah, I think writer's block doesn't, um, doesn't occur for me. Oh, that's <laughs> wonderful. Um, you've mentioned about how you love to have reader feedback. How, how is the best way to get that or how do you go about getting that? Are you active online or are there other ways that you interact with your readers? Yeah, yeah, I've got um, uh, my official website, which is ianaustin.org. Um, there's a Facebook page, which is Ian Austin Author. And there's also an Instagram page, which is Ian Austin Author. Fantastic. And you get you get people approaching you through those you, and you respond to them through those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the, I, I get messages all the time and um, it's, it's, it's very flattering um, also to be uh, stopped occasionally. Um, you know, this um, we've got the LMP product in New Zealand, haven't we? The lemonade drink. Yes. And someone said to me the other day that I'm the LMP of the literary world. I'm world famous in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I was going to ask you about distribution, actually. So you are mainly a New Zealand audience at the moment, are you? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've got a great... Um, New Zealand distributor. Um, one of the things that I learned very early on was areas that I'm not expert in, surround myself with the best possible people, um, which I did so far as editing and publicity and distribution goes. So although I'm self-published, we're in, um, what's the phrase, every every good bookshop. So it's easy to find the books. Uh, if, you, if your local shop doesn't have it, just ask and they'll be able to source it for you. Um, but uh, we've also sold books in the UK and Australia, America. Um, uh, I think it was the agency. Uh, I was told the other day that the agency is apparently in every library in California, which is quite cool. Oh, fantastic. And are you on Amazon as well? No, I have this, um, this grand plan, which included publishing um, all three books as ebooks um, when the third one came out. But because of what's happening with... Um, potential publishing deals at the moment we've put that idea on hold for a while okay yep that's great well look Ian look thank you so much for your time we have pretty much run out of time now but it's been wonderful talking and I will watch with interest what the feedback is on this massive cliffhanger and how it turns out my pleasure hey thanks so much for having me Jenny that's great bye for now bye thanks for listening to the joys of binge reading podcast you can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com 
or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.